0: Welcome to The Rise and Resilience of Populism in Eastern Europe. I'm Tsveta Petrova, lecturer in the political science department at Columbia University. With this interview series, we seek to popularize academic research on contemporary European populism. Over the past decade, a number of European populist parties have become increasingly competitive in key votes. And in Eastern Europe, some of these parties have not only come to power, but remained in office in consecutive elections. So with the interviews for the series, we'll interrogate some of the main drivers and impacts of populist mobilization in Eastern Europe. The series is hosted by the European Institute at Columbia and made possible with the support of the Erasmus+ Plus program of the European Union. The European Commission's support for this series, however, does not constitute an endorsement of its contents, which reflect the views of the interviewer and interviewees alone. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Ivan Krastev, Good day, Dr. Kristev. How are you?
1: Very nice. Thank you.
0: Dr. Kristev is the chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He is a founding boarding, board member of the European Council on Foreign Relations, a member of the Board of Trustees of the International Crisis Group, and a member of the GlobSec Executive Board. Ivan Kristev is the author of The Light That Failed. Co-authored book with Stephen Holmes, which won the 30th annual Lionel Gilbert Prize. He's also the author of *After Europe: Democracy Disrupted* in *Mistrust*. We trust, and last year, Dr. Kristev won the Ameri Prize for European essay writing. Dr. Kristev, you've written a lot about populism and democracy in contemporary Europe. But before we delve into that topic, let's start with your definition of populism which is a much contested concept today. So to you, who are the populists and what do they stand for? What do they represent? It's a good question because from time to time I have the
1: feeling that the fight over the definition of populism is even kind of a bloodier uh, than the fight with uh, populists. Uh, For me, the populism basically is the form of exclusionary democratic politics. So as a result of it, uh, I see populism as a phenomenon very much part of the democratic politics. Uh, but the democratic politics, which uh, as Ian Vera Miller rightly point out is highly anti-pluralistic and which basically try to exclude certain type of uh, the body politics, basically declaiming it leg- illegitimate. So from this point of view, populism interests me in three different uh, uh, ways. One is your questions, who are the populists, or what kind of, what are the ideas of populists? Because one of the interesting stories, populism was always around, but till a decade ago, it was much more objective than a noun. We were talking about populist policies, about even populist leaders. Now, obviously we see populism as a set of ideas which see the major conflict in society as a conflict between the true people and the corrupt elites. Uh, and as a result of it, basically representing the true people is becoming the most important for this idea of uh, populism. And as a result of it, populist parties to a great extent are very much voice for some threatened majorities that can be for one or the other reasons uh, seen in democratic societies. The second, problem and the second interesting idea about populism and for me this is also quite interesting is obviously we see certain transformation of democratic politics as a whole Mm -hmm. it's very much based in changes in technologies the changes of cultural sensitivities Uh, there is obviously crisis of certain institutions of the representative democracies and populism is also about this so from this point of view everybody is a much more populist than it used to be. Hmm. Uh, and the third is also in Mario populism is a kind of a way to define the government practice of certain regimes and particularly a form of the democratic majoritarianism in which governments that come to power uh, through elections, which basically also tolerate kind of a competitive elections, but uh, this is a form of a Politics, which really very much put into question the rights of the minorities, the separation of
0: powers, the freedom of the
1: media, many of the things that have been discussed. So, Hmm.
0: you you have a provocative argument, which um, is that the rise of populism in Europe is a result of the success of the democratization of European societies, not their failure. So, I was hoping you could explain that.
1: Listen, I do believe that, at least for me, it's very important to try to see that many things that we don't like about populism, particularly anti-institutional behavior, very much related to the erosion of the trust in democratic institutions, in fact, is the result of the democratization of society. People have the feeling that they have much more of a choice. And in mm-hmm. a certain way, for a long period of time after the end of the Cold War, many citizens have the feeling that probably they are freer than before, but they're losing power. Uh, And this is why the success of uh, democracy, the fact that democracy became the default options for societies, from this point of view, populism is not challenging the democratic ideal. Populism is simply, populists are talking about real democracy, democracy in which the voice of the people are going to be heard. Populists these days are one of those who basically trust elections more than anybody else because they have the tendency to win them. Uh, So from this point of view, I do believe that it was the democratization of society but also the transformation of a classical citizen voter of the Cold War period in a much more citizen consumer. And from this point of view, populism is very different for example, than certain other radical ideologies from the, for example, interwar period when people try to basically mix and to claim that many things of the behavior of the populist parties that we have today, be it in Europe and in the United States, is just the return of fascism, they don't recognize, in my view, one fundamental difference. Fascism like communism have been revolutionary ideologies. They didn't like the people in the way they were. They wanted to change them. Mm-hmm. They wanted to change them in a very different way, but it was a pedagogical regime. <laughs> In a certain way, one of the interesting story about populism today is that this claim for a change is not there. Mm -hmm. From this point of view, the populist parties are really trying to serve their voters in the way basically the waiter is serving uh, the customers in the restaurant. The major, the major message of the populist leaders are you're right. Mm -hmm. I don't want to change you. You're here. I'm just to speak for you you're right nevertheless of what you're saying, you're right nevertheless of what you're doing. Uh, And I do believe this is an important difference and this very much fits to this rise of the citizen consumer which in my view is very much transforming uh, uh, politics.
0: Hmm. So it's defensive, it's not visionary project. No,
1: no, it's not. Uh, It could be radical, but it's not revolutionary. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, how can we make sense of this current state of European democracy? How did we get here?
1: Uh, yes, we get here first slowly and then very fast. Uh, and the story is that, uh, as I said, some of the major successes of European democracies was also to be blamed for what is happening. First, you have this major democratization of societies in the 1970s and eighties, this type of a Wall Street uh, Woodstock revolution where basically for the citizens, one of the most important values was to have a choice about everything, to express uh, herself. And this is quite important because this is one of the factors that very much eroded the traditional role of political parties. Mm -hmm. In a certain way, people wanted to be treated in a very individual way. Uh, This is why one-issue parties came into being. This is why in a certain way, traditional political loyalties and the left-right divide didn't work. Secondly, it was very much the role of the end of the Cold War because from time to time, I do believe we're quite, neglecting to what extent the Cold War frame has been disciplining uh, Western European democracies uh, uh, in the period 45, 1989, uh, because all the time they should have been kind of a competing for the loyalty of their working class. They're all the time basically competing with another uh, ideological system that was claiming uh, 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 that future belongs to them. This has disappeared and we have a consensual politics, which for a certain period of time was perceived as the strengths of the European politics. But then for many people, this consensual politics was perceived as democracy without choices. Nevertheless, for whom you vote, nothing is really changing. You can change government, but you are not changing policies. And this created this atmosphere of distrust and this uh, kind of dream for a radical change that was very much utilized and used by uh, populist leaders. But there are also other changes. Of course, the digital revolution, what is happening with technology and the way internet is changing politics. You cannot imagine, for example, the Trump phenomenon without Twitter, without social media. This is also changes that have been very much there, but also the way, the most important about democracy, in my view, and I, of course, could be easily wrong, but. I don't believe that the major egalitarian nature of democracy is not that we all are equal, not that we all basically know the same things, but the idea is that our own experience is equally valuable and that nobody better than us knows what is best for us. So from this point of view, one of the thing that is changing very much is the big data with all this kind of uh, uh, discoveries in the neurosciences that suddenly somebody says that they can predict our behavior without talking to us anymore. Mm -hmm. All this idea of micro targeting, uh, all this kind of a total change of politics from persuasion to manipulation, because of the fact that now we know that most of the decision of the voters are irrational in a way, but we know how to influence this. This is also an important change that basically changed uh, not only European politics, I do believe it changed democratic politics everywhere to extend that uh, many uh, basically really see this and experience this as uh, the dramatic crisis of democracy.
0: Hmm. Um, So you've really laid out this broad structural story, perspective of the rise of populism. And I'm wondering what is the proximate cause or the trigger for what has now been defined as a wave of populism, uh, but as you rightly pointed out, there was a current there to begin with for a long, long time. So are there any specific events that triggered um, this explosion of populists in Europe?
1: No, sure. Uh, listen, and as you know, the major debate uh, in academic literature is uh, should we work primarily for the economic uh, roots of what is happening and uh, here the stories are then of course global financial crisis played a very important role uh, for the way people basically uh, try to reperceive their life what is happening their life chances and so on we suddenly kind of discovered how much more unequal our societies and more insecure we are becoming so this kind of an economic effect is very much there uh, but also there is a very important cultural factor Uh, And there is a very fast value chain chain, and of course there was a very strong backlash against it. Uh, And of course this kind of explanations are going to compete each other and populism makes sense only in plural. When you talk about different populist conditions and only about populist actors, of course there's some common characteristics but they're driven quite uh, uh, often from a very different type of a sources, and they're mobilizing a different type of anxieties and resentments. Uh, but both these economic uh, uh, kind of a factors, which were very clear with the deindustrialization of Western societies, was basically loss a certain level of social economic security, but also economic optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other side, basically a very kind of a growing gap in the value perceptions of the different parts of the public. Uh, I do believe this was the uh, the two things that play a role for me also quite important uh, factor is and this is something that particularly uh, I'm very much interested in my research is the demographic factor hmm. and to what extent basically the aging of the population, the change uh, Uh, of uh, the composition of society. Uh, All this from migration to emigration is also creating certain type of uh, backlashes and creates conditions uh, for what we're seeing. Because if you see the results of the European elections, 2019, paradoxically, it was not education, it was not incomes, it was not even age, but it was the regions which the highest number of people have left for the last 10 years. Better explain where the far right parties are going to have uh, overrepresentation. So from this point of view, this kind of also spatial view of politics and that uh, this kind of also famous density divide in the United States between big uh, metropolitan cities and rural areas is also part of the explanations.
0: Hmm. So um, then, in a way, you're arguing that the success of the liberals in excluding anti-capitalist discourse coupled with the crisis of capitalism we saw in the early 2000s is opening a space for identity politics that are responding to these demographic tendencies.
1: Yeah. Uh, My major argument is that in a strange way, and it was very easily uh, seen during the refugee crisis in Europe, but even before it. uh, In order, in order basically to understand is that, well, people are really seeing kind of a lack of representation of a certain type of a threat and change that they feel. And this change could be very different from place to place. It's very easy. And some of these parties are strongly nativist and they manage to mobilize a lot of, uh, uh, to get a lot of their support, basically creating uh, fears and basically Uh, uh, Triggering fears, which were not very much there. And from this point of view, Eastern Europe is a great example, because you have very strong anti-migrant sentiments in the absence of migrants. But this was about other things. For example, in the case of uh, uh, Eastern Europe, it was quite clear that while uh, on the surface, everybody was talking about the fear of all those foreigners who are going to come and who basically are going to take our countries from us, in a certain way, part of the anxiety and insecurity was the result of something totally different, not about migration, the people coming, but about the outcome of emigration. The fact mm-hmm. that a lot of East Europeans after 1989 and particularly after our countries joined the European Union had been left their countries and now they're working in living outside of these countries so and we're talking about big numbers we're talking about 10 15 percent in some of the countries so this combined with the fact that eastern europe is the fastest shrinking in mm. demographic terms corner of the world created this fear of ethnic vanishing. created this type of a threatened majorities which try to defend their cultural identity, their economic positions, their political power by voting in power, political uh, governments like the ones we're seeing in Hungary and Poland. And in a certain way, this nationalistic rhetoric is playing the same role uh, the Berlin Wall played after 1961. You try to stop people in an active uh, age, to leave the country in the moment in which basically the labor market is quite short and in which you're basically afraid of depopulation. And I do believe these sources uh, are quite important for Eastern Europe and very different than uh, the sources, for example, uh, for the rise of far right in Western Europe, where real immigration is much more of an issue.
0: So let's talk about this difference between Eastern and Western Europe. In what ways do you see them as similar? In what ways are they different? If we think about this, the various populist trends we've discussed.
1: In the beginning, particularly when for the first time the, uh, the peace government came into power in Poland in 2005, uh, all the discourse was about uh, the crisis of democratization. Hmm. It was not about the crisis of democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, of course, uh, uh, there was a lot of talk that populists basically represent the economic losers of the reform. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're talking about something much more important than the crisis of democratization. We're talking about the crisis of democracy and basically what is happening in Central and Eastern Europe is part of it. But of course there are specificities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Economic explanation works well for some countries and not well for others. And Poland is the one that basically is most difficult to explain the success uh, of uh, uh, the peace government simply in economic terms. For the last 30 years, basically, this was the basic economic success in Europe, not in Eastern Europe. This was a country that even didn't have a recession during the 2008-2010. But even if you see on a kind of a softer indicator, social inequality, has been declined. Uh, In the opinion polls, more than 70% of the polls declared that they're satisfied with their life. So where this resentment comes from. And one of the things, and this is what basically we have been also arguing with Stephen Holmes in uh, the line that failed is that part of the specificity of uh, the crisis of uh, democracy in Central and Eastern Europe uh, was due to the fact that the very process of democratization, uh, which also took the form of not simply building democratic institutions but joining European Union, adopting uh, uh, institution and legislation that had been there. The process of democratization was very much perceived as the imitation of the West. Mm-hmm. imitation is not imposition and for so, I me mean, this is quite important We're, this is not about kind of a type of practices that uh, are well known in the post colonial discourse it's not about this east europeans we wanted to be part of europe mm-hmm. we wanted uh, these democratic institutions but the story is that when you imitate somebody even when you admire this somebody at the same time the question is if you want to be like somebody else what about you uh, and uh, i do believe this created certain resentment uh, among certain part of the population. And this idea that we want to be ourselves, that we're not going to imitate Germans, that we're not going to imitate French, uh, became very strong and it was very, and was skillfully used uh, by the populist politicians to get votes. What is even more important, while your Euro- East Europeans have been imitating uh, Western Europe, Western Europe has been changing. Mm-hmm. So in 1990, for many conservative polls, what they liked about the West was that This is a place where they go to church, uh, where they go this and that. And 30 years later, it was a very different West that they had been imitating. So the idea of kind of being cheated, this is not what we have been uh, buying for, is also something to be heard very strongly when you listen to some of the voices of these uh, populist leaders. So this uh, resentment, against the imitation. The fact that basically it was seen as an asymmetrical relationship, not simply that you're imitating, but somebody else is telling you how well you're doing this. uh, Helped uh, basically some of these political leaders to play very strongly the idea of the cultural sovereignty, not simply political sovereignty. Uh, Part of, of course, uh, other important difference between East and West has a lot to do with uh, certain changes that happened in the 20th century. And this is not simply uh, the communist period. If you look at the ethnic map Mm. of Europe in the year 1900, you're going to see two Europe's. One was quite ethnically homogeneous and this was Western Europe, Germany, France. Mm -hmm. And the other was extremely ethnically and religiously and culturally diverse. And this was the Habsburg Europe, the central Europe. Mm -hmm. After a century of revolutions and wars, basically, now we have two totally different types of (laughs) Europe. One is quite ethnically homogeneous, and this is Central and Eastern Europe, and the other is very much culturally uh, and ethnically diverse. Even more, even during the communist period, well, uh, the official line was highly internationalist, ethnic homogeneity was made a precondition for the existing of the nation states, for sovereignty, for uh, very idea of political independence. So as a result of it, I do believe that this difference makes a huge uh, uh, explanatory power to see why uh, we have this kind of a differences. And the other kind of a difference is also a very different effect of 1968 on both East and West, because 1968 was important for both East and the West. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the West, it was very much about individual rights, the rights of the minorities. It mm-hmm. was very much about decolonization. Uh, in the East, on one level, this was very much about the national sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Checks against the Soviets, Poles against the Soviets. But also paradoxically, 1968 in power terms ended differently in East and the West. In the West, the younger generation one, the one politically, the one culturally. Uh, in the East, it was the other generation, the world generation that sure. predominated. And as a result of it, basically, I do believe this generational dynamics is quite important because part of the problem of Eastern Europe is also a major generational of disbalance as a result of the exodus, which can be seen very much in many countries. Um, the new young generation is a small generational cohort. There are not many of them and this is also the most mobile generation they are people who when they don't like what they see in their country they are much more ready to exit than to voice mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so then it's it's an interesting parallel in the west you see a victory for the rights of the individual in the East. It's a victory for the rights of the nation. Yet the East is copying the West. And so we see this clash of liberalism and illiberalism. Now um, you talk about populism, not as a pathology but as a profound transformation of society. And again, in the sixties, there was a declaration of end of ideology in the nineties and the end of history. What are we in the end of today? What is this transformation towards?
1: Poland-Hungary on one side, and for example, Germany on the other. Uh, you're going to see that uh, Germany and the classical liberal project very much goes uh, for kind of a society which they assume that is going to be much more culturally diverse, they're going to be coming people who obviously are not going to be born in Germany, who are going to be integrated in this society. So the most important is to secure a certain type of a constitutional rights of majorities, but at the same time basically to create a situation in which it's going to be as easy as possible for the new citizens to be integrated. What you see in the East is something in my view different. It is not closing of the countries. By the way, Poland is the European country, which in the last uh, three years before the pandemic uh, welcomed most labor migrants. Yeah. So this is not about you And by the way, it's not only Ukrainians, of course, in a big way, but not only 20,000 Pakistanis. So from this point of view, what is happening in the East is that political rights are perceived very much as an ethnic privilege. You're, you're ready to open the market, but you are not ready to open the electoral, uh, body electoral, body politics. If this project of keeping the political rights only within the basically ethnic body of Bulgarians, Poles, Hungarians, doesn't matter, uh, while at the same time giving social and economic rights for people who are going to work in these countries because, because of the demographic decline, obviously there is a huge need of workers and these workers should come from somewhere. Then we can end up in 20 years with the following situation. 20-25% of the people in the workforce are not going to have the right to vote. 40% of the people living in the country who can vote are not working anymore. These are basically retired people. And 15-20% of the people who have voting rights, they don't live in the country and they're not paying taxes there. So then, the question is: What is going to be the nature of democratic politics? How it is going to regulate this type of societies? And paradoxically, European Union makes it much easier for this kind of a situation to emerge, without creating a political crisis. Because somebody who works now in Bulgaria tomorrow can work in Romania. The day after tomorrow, probably is going to move to Germany. So the mobility is very much within the project. You're not you're not so much trying basically to be integrated and to imagine that you're going to live there forever in the way you're doing when you go to the United States or places which are far away. And I do believe this is a type of questions that we should be Asking, I don't believe that populists can answer these questions and I also do believe that they are totally underestimating That by marginalizing the younger part of the population uh, and giving them very strong incentives to leave the country, they are in a self-defeating position, but of course many of the questions they're asking are real questions. uh, Mm. Because it's not simply the 25%, the population is not going to vote, but we can end up with a situation if this is the case, where the major economic uh, problems are going to be solved. Does it mean that we're going to have more and more economic decision making outside of the electoral politics? Mm -hmm. And if this is the case, then electoral politics is going to be about identity politics, and identity politics of a very particular type, this type, it's about national identity.
0: Mm -hmm. what are some of the other paradoxes that you see that need to be resolved listen
1: for Europe it's more difficult than anywhere else because on a certain way uh, you have a crisis on the level of uh, the nation state you also have to a certain extent also a crisis on the level of what is the idea of European democracy how easily you're going to have a democracy in a community that does not share language that is not easily going to be part of a common public debate and part of the Kind of a formula of the European Union till now that he'd been working was policy without politics in Brussels and politics without policy on the national level. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this is not how it is going to work. Uh, And we're going and we're seeing more uh, pressure uh, uh, for integration. And to be honest, the support for the European Union now after the COVID 19 is much higher than it was before, regardless of the fact that many people were dissatisfied with the response. And this is an interesting story. Even the failures of the European Union are convincing voters that European Union should stay, it should be much more powerful, Uh, but it is not easy. It is not easy to reconcile the, the national... Democracy was very much connected to the idea of the nation state in Europe, much more than anywhere else. And there are also very different cultural sensitivities talking about East and West. One of the major difference between East and West is that none of these European countries was a colonial power. Mm -hmm. This type of a cultural differences are there. And the interesting story is how to allow this to function in the way that is not going to push the countries either to basically very much limit the democratic possibilities of the citizens to disagree. Or on the other side, basically uh, to make a democracy that does not function, you cannot deliver to the people because this is the other story. It can basically become uh, very chaotic. I don't see, honestly speaking, the way for this type of a much more nativist governments uh, to deliver to their own people because the paradox of Europe is that we have a nationalism but we don't have a national economies anymore.
0: How do you think about the resilience of this populism in Europe more broadly, but also in Eastern Europe? How do you explain it?
1: But Listen, people always are looking for alternative and change. And uh, the thing that is going to kind of radicalize people most is if you're going to tell them that there is no alternative. Hmm. Uh, It's not by accident that the most consensual society that you have, uh, and this was Germany, Uh, The moment when basically the idea was that there is no alternative, you end up with alternative for Germany. Uh, So as a result of it, basically uh, this type of a populist party is always going to be part of a certain electoral cycle, political cycle, you're going to work for change. But I do believe that the very important thing is that they're going to change. And here the difference between the Western type of a conservative populism and the Eastern is very interesting. On the Eastern side, we are conservative on everything. Uh, in the Western, of course you can have an anti-migrant party, but this anti-migrant party does not mean that they by definition should be anti-gay and after this and after that, that, because there are new consensus that have been brought in society and this is basically something that is accepted. there is a broad public agreement about this. So this type of a new populism they are going to play on different issues. Uh, so from this point of view, I do believe that you're always going to have a certain type of a populist eruptions. Anytime when democracy is not delivering, anytime when people believe that corruption and, uh, uh, is uh, controlling and there are certain elites who are manipulative and unaccountable. Uh, but this reaction which can come from the left and from right, it doesn't matter, uh, but they're going to be different. So the resilience of populism is that it is part of the democratic politics. Uh, and uh, what is the problem is that at the same time, it is very much stressing this possibility of the democratic politics, not only to include, but also to exclude, mm-hmm. because one of the most important right of every political community is to decide who is part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. So my last question to you today, um, what challenges to these populist movements and regimes do you see ahead?
1: The biggest challenge is that uh, many of them came as a one issue political parties, particularly in the West. Migration was critically important. And the moment when this issue basically is losing some of its central role, and this was very much seen in the COVID-19 situation, Mm. they're either going to be able to change and to reposition or they're going to look slightly relevant. Uh, but here, and this is from this point of view, the populist parties are much more dependent on the talent and political skills of their leaders uh, than many of the other parties. So what I see also is a trend uh, uh, in general, and one of the biggest fight that is going to come after COVID-19, at least in European societies, but I do believe probably the same in the United States, is who is going to take control over the idea of freedom? Hmm. Who is constraining the freedom. Is this basically, what should we fear? These extreme political parties on the right, much more rarely these days on the left, who wants to change the system or we should fear that our freedom uh, is overtaken by this kind of overprotecting governments who are locking down everybody for a limited period of time, who starts to fall in love with the state of exception, should we fear basically the big technological companies that are trying to get control of our public and private life and who's going to defend us. So redefining the idea of the freedom on every different occasion is something that in my view is important and this is different than what was the issue 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Because 10 years ago, we had the feeling that we are free, but we are powerless. Mm-hmm. Our freedom was not coming from the power of our ballot now we don't have the feeling that we're as free as we believed we were. And this is going, in my view, to be negotiated and to be uh, conceptualized differently by different political parties.
0: So you leave us with the question of freedom as one of the central political questions in the coming years and maybe even decades.
1: Yeah, and how we're defining and basically who is defending the uh, uh who is defending freedom and basically who is the enemy of the freedom and i do believe this is going to be an issue uh, in a society in which both big data but also kind of certain level of changes in democratic politics makes people much more suspicious uh, about how free they are
0: dr Christoph thank you so much for joining me today it's been really a fascinating conversation on democracy and populism in europe um, we look forward to your future work on this topic and your latest book, it's titled Is It Tomorrow Yet? How the Pandemic Changes Europe. Um, this book is coming out this year, correct?
1: Uh, it, uh, it it came out uh, uh, last year in a certain way. My idea was that with the pandemic, this is like with love. You're either writing at the beginning or when it is over, because mm. the riskiest is in the middle.
0: Uh, So we look forward to it. This was the Rise and Resilience of Populism in Eastern Europe. Special thanks to our audience for listening. We hope that you will tune in for our future interviews as well. For those and other events sponsored by the European Institute at Columbia, please visit the Institute's website, europe.columbia.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Columbia Europe. Thank you. Thank you.